invite you to turn in your Bibles to read there. I will read. You can follow along with me. I'll read uh, Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. I'll read to the end of the chapter. Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver, and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies, and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. The Lord... By wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths were broken up, and clouds dropped down the dew. My son, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, so they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. Then you will walk safely in your way, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down and your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror, nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not devise evil against your neighbor, for he dwells by you for safety's sake. Do not strive with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. Do not envy the oppressor and choose none of his ways, for the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked. But he blesses the home of the just. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. The wise man shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. As far as the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. O Lord, would you grant even now wisdom from your word, that we might get that precious gift that comes from you, You would even this evening dispense with it freely. As we endeavor to live lives that glorify you, Lord, may we love our neighbor as ourselves. May we see then the priceless, incomparable worth of wisdom tonight. And so get it, ask for it, and live by it. All for the glory and honor of your name. We pray this in your name. Amen. Tonight we come to the great subject of the incomparable value or worth of wisdom. It is priceless. It is without compare. It is that thing which you should seek above all else. For it not only makes a man happy, joyful, satisfied, but it comes perhaps with the greatest recommendation, that ultimate testimonial, God himself used wisdom in the creation of all things. 
And so the son here is encouraged again partway through this chapter. We see it at the beginning, chapter 3, verse 1, my son. Here again, verse 21, my son. We saw it earlier also in verse 11. It is a sermon from a father to a son. It could be easily also communicated to a daughter. This is for those who lack wisdom, who are immature, who are young, to gain wisdom, to get wisdom, as we will see later in Proverbs chapter 4. The reason for this is that it will be a great blessing. It is the means by which we live at peace in the world that God has made, so that we might not seek the ways of the wicked, and therefore not only get blessing in this life, but ultimately blessing in the life that is to come. Two things that I want to say tonight as it relates to wisdom. The first is wisdom's worth. Second, wisdom and neighborly love. Wisdom's worth and wisdom and neighborly love. In fact, in verses 13 through 18, under this first heading of wisdom's worth, we see the worth of wisdom to men. Happy is the man who finds wisdom. This sermon continues to a a kind of climax from the section previous in verses 1 through 12. Verses 13 through 35 are an expression, as I have already said, of the priceless nature of wisdom, not only to us, to God and for our protection. Now, in verse 13, we see that the one who finds wisdom is blessed, that the one who gains understanding is happy. Happy is not a trite word, although at times our conception of happy is trite. We're not talking about momentary happiness. We're not talking about a kind of um, fleeting here today and gone tomorrow happiness. We're talking about a kind of cheer or joy that is, well, perpetual. It endures. It's durable. In fact, it is a greater happiness than wealth itself. Right now, if you've listened to any podcast, you've probably heard you need to go buy gold and silver. You need to diversify your portfolio because you never know what's going to happen to the dollar. Maybe you even heard, go buy some of the uh, currencies like Bitcoin and others. All of these efforts, though at times wise, pale in comparison to the recommendation given here by the Father to the Son, by God to his people, to get that very thing that is incomparable in terms of value. It is better than silver. It is better than gold. It is better... Then rubies. How many children, how many of you have ever thought, man, I would just love to have a bucket full of rubies? It's a strange thing, but you would have great value indeed. You could, I don't even know if you could take it to the bank. You'd probably have to take it to a, don't take it to a pawn shop, maybe a jeweler. What can I get for this bucket full of rubies? (laughs) Well, you are a rich child indeed. In fact, when Solomon was asked by God, what do you want? He said, I want wisdom. And God said, more than anything else, this request I will grant to you because you did not ask for wisdom or power or pleasure or the satisfaction of those things. It is more precious than any commodity that is found on earth because it comes from God himself. And not only that, 
Is it greater than the treasures of earth? But it makes your days on earth sweet and long. Verse 16. Length of days is in wisdom's right hand. And in her left hand, riches and honor. In fact, if anything, wisdom is a kind of indirect way to gain the very things of earth. There is an ancient Talmudic proverb that says, Lackest thou wisdom? What hast thou acquired? Hast thou acquired wisdom? What lackest thou? It's simple. If you lack wisdom, you are poor indeed. But if you possess wisdom, there is nothing you actually lack. Wisdom is not only an object worthy of our affection, our longing, but wisdom is also a tool by which we might incorporate biblical principles to grow in wealth. Yes, even at times, wealth in this world. Wisdom is truly incomparable in this regard. And not only do you have a long life, but a pleasant life. When you deal with people, when you deal with situations with wisdom, you end up in a place of pleasantness and peace. Now, that is not always the case, as we will see with the Proverbs. Remember I said, here's the thousand-dollar word, they are epigrammatic in nature. They state a truth that is not always exhaustively true. The time and history prove that the Proverbs are those very statements of glorious reality that we can hang our hat upon. Do you wish to have peace and a pleasant life? Then get wisdom. And not only is wisdom a pleasantness to us, a long life of shalom, but she also is a tree, a tree of life to those who take hold of her. She is, (laughs) to put it in modern parlance, A happy tree. You know what I mean? A happy tree. She is a tree to which we can cling. We can build our nest, as it were. You can go to that tree of life by taking hold of wisdom. It is the tree that Adam and his wife actually neglected in the garden. We are to seek after wisdom. A tree that provides for us a bulwark of peace, comfort, and security. What is the father trying to do here? He is trying to draw the son into a place where he wants the very thing that the father knows is best for him. And so he uses what? Word pictures. Parents, you do this all the time. This is like this. And so you use a simile, you use illustrations and metaphors and all of these other things to try to enchant or draw the hearts of your children towards the law of God. And the law of God is not some cold thing. It is not impractical or impossible or distant. Remember what wisdom does? does? Uh, She yells. She cries aloud, come and listen to me. Everywhere man goes, God makes it clear that his ways are good ways. And the greatest testimonial of the value and worth and practical nature of wisdom is that it is through wisdom that God made the heavens and the earth. Now, why do we live in such a foolish age? Because we have, as a people, at the very heart, denied our existence as originating with God, and we have denied the existence of the universe 
as being made by God. What you actually give up when you get rid of six-day creation is wisdom. When you cannot see the glory of wisdom and God's incorporating or using of wisdom in creation, you give up wisdom itself. So let's look at verse 19 and 20. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths were broken up and clouds dropped down the dew. Now, here is where they are, even in Reformed circles, pastors who say it is actually, when you look at the book of Genesis, not a poetic and historical account of creation. What we must do is we must sort of fit into the biblical description of the way things are made, this evolutionary science that now is the great consensus of modern man. And so what we have is this syncretistic theory that is often called theistic evolution. There's no place in this. There's nothing in Christian theology. Stay away from this stuff. Now, there are those within the realm of orthodoxy that debate the age of the earth, those types of things. But theistic evolution essentially says this, that God made all things through the instrument of evolutionary biology such that Adam and his wife were not actually the first men and women, but they arose from a populace of other people. They just happened to be particularly called by God. Is this the wisdom of God? Is this the clear wisdom that is used in understanding Genesis 1 and 2? No. No. What is this? It is accommodating not the wisdom of God in Scripture, but the folly of man in what is essentially pagan science and superstition. What we must see is that if we deny God as creator and making things in his own wisdom and by his own wisdom to bring about not just stuff, but how all of that stuff relates to all the other stuff. That's a technical science word, stuff. <laughs> we don't understand how the universe works. And so what it means is this. If we can move God from the center of creation and his wisdom and righteousness from the center of creation, then guess what? We are off the hook. We don't have to live by God's rules. If you can remove God as the origin of all things, then he is also not the end for which we have been made. Our lives are therefore removed from the order or telos of Scripture. We can do what we want to do. And that is not wisdom. That is folly. And so I would say to you this, if it's good enough for God, what better testimonial is there to get wisdom? To get wisdom. Do you need a better reason? No, the reason though is that we often reject it is because we don't actually wish to worship and adore and follow after God. And so the father continues to plead. With the son, and he brings it home here in verses 21 through 26. And so he clearly addresses the son, and again he says, Do not let wisdom depart from your eyes. Now, how do you encounter wisdom with your eyes? Primarily, the Holy Scripture. 
what God has given us in his word. We are to be those who are looking at the word and reading the word. And by reading it, we are to take in what is sound and what gives discretion. And these things take time. Children, parents, I think you would agree, lack discretion. (laughs) They lack soundness of thought and reason. And the way in which they go from zero discretion, (laughs) right, to discretion is parents, through the word, teaching them how to live. Don't get in that van, right? Be dis- exercise discretion. You can come in my car. I'm your parent or the member or someone that's a member of the church. But when there's some stranger that says, hey, what is it you do? Well, stranger danger. Exercise discretion. You have to learn that. In fact, we have to learn all of these things. <clears throat> Chief among which is what is the end of the path of this decision? If I make this decision right here, discretion allows you to see the future as it were if you walk out that path. Parents, you've done this a lot, I'm sure. Okay, son, if you get that job, these are the things that may happen. If you get that job, these are the things that may happen. If you go to that school or do this thing, just know these are the things which will follow in sequence based upon the decisions and desires of your heart. How do you do this? Flip a coin, right? Just let the coin decide. No! You exercise wisdom. Not only that, but it will adorn your life or your soul. I'm sorry. It will be, verse 22, so they will be life to your soul and grace around your neck. Verse 23, then you will walk safely in your way. Not only will you walk well, but you will not stumble. You will be less inclined to falling off the path. If you guard wisdom, if you keep it in your heart, you will know the security that wisdom brings. It brings also fearlessness. Look at verse 24. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down and your sleep will be sweet. How much sleep do we lose, either because we are foolish and sinful and we feel the regret and the shame of our decisions, or because we are under the chaos of not trusting the Lord and his sovereignty? We've lost a lot of sleep to sinfulness and anxiety in our lives, have we not? But what does wisdom do? Look at verse 25. Do not be afraid of sudden terror. To whom is terror never sudden? The Lord. Not only does he see all things, but he is sovereign. He has decreed all things. We have not. And oftentimes it seems we walk through life like we do in a dark room. We can't even see our hands in front of our faces. And so when terror comes, it is easy for us to jump, to be shocked. But why? Because oftentimes we forget where hard providence comes from. Where the trouble of the wicked comes from. In fact, according to God's grand designs, the reason why he often allows the evil to afflict his people is to do what? To exemplify and exalt his grace in our midst. 
we know the plot when we have wisdom. And I don't mean all the details or what they are always exhaustively for, but what we know is that there is nothing sudden to God. And though it may be sudden to us, it does not bring us into a place of such trouble that we lose faith, that we lose hope, that we lose confidence. Look at verse 26. For the Lord is our confidence, and he will keep us from getting caught. By whom? The wicked. And what is the great redemptive historical testimony to this? The trap that Satan fell into at the cross. Now for Satan, that was sudden terror, wasn't it? I won the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One. I got him. He's dead. And then on the third day, the trap had been set, and Satan fell right into it. What the resurrection does is it turns on its head all of the hard providences that might bring us despair. We can have hope in the midst of it. Ultimately, why? Because in Christ, we are never alone. We are never let go. We are never cast off. He never lets us out of his hand. Wisdom reminds us of the glory of salvation and the necessity and beauty of eternal perspective. Because there are times where the wicked get us, right? We know of martyrs. Some of us may know them firsthand. We've heard the stories of our friends in Eritrea and elsewhere throughout the world, and they go to death at the hands of wicked men, and yet what? Well, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And just like Satan, the wicked fall into the same trap that God brings low those who are wise in their own eyes, and he exalts himself even, even in the hardship of the righteous. Now let's look at this second point. Point, point, excuse me, wisdom and neighborly love. In verses 27 through 30, God calls us to fulfill our duty, our obligation, and that is to be a good neighbor. Not like State Farm, but like whom? Like Christ, the elder brother. In verses 27 through 28, we find as a first part of this call to love our neighbor, something stated in the negative. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. Now, to whom do we owe good? To our neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Those who are in proximity to you. Why is it due to them? Because they are not your neighbor by accident. They are your neighbor by providence. God has put them next to you so that you might serve them. Sometimes, sometimes those neighbors are in your church and you didn't ask for them, right? Sometimes people come into a church and they are brought and God, for his reasons that at times, sometimes we struggle with. God says, here, here's this family. Now serve them. In fact, the book of Acts records countless opportunities and challenges in the early church in which different groups were brought into the church and the church had to learn how to love and accept and welcome those of differing theological backgrounds. Like the disciples of John the Baptist, like the Gentiles. In fact, this morning we saw great testimony that when you join Reformation OPC... 
When people make vows, the congregation also makes vows to them. Yes, and you've done it a ton. Maybe that's the trap we ought to fall into, blessedly, happily. I am compelled by this bond of the Holy Spirit that is now mine as a child of God that I look at especially my fellow churchmen and I see my great duty to be what? One of not withholding good and when it is in your power to help them. Now that means there may be times in your life where you don't have the power to help and you need someone else's help. In fact, we are told to do what? We're told in the Gospels to bear one another's burdens, or the epistles. And not only in the epistles are we told to bear one another's burdens, but we're also taught to work in such a way that we have less of a burden to heap upon others. Paul says to those in Thessalonica, if you do not work, you do not eat. The call to the faith is not a call to laziness and apathy. And the primary benefit of any kind of worldly wealth is what? That you can share it. In fact, as we learn every third Sunday, some of the best things in life are better shared with other people. Right? Good food, good desserts. These are the things we are called to do. Wisdom says, do not withhold good. And not only are we to not withhold good, but we are to give quickly. If you have it, go ahead and give it. Don't hang on to it. Don't say, I'll give it to you tomorrow. What is that called? It's called stalling. And the intention isn't to give. Your hope is that they will forget that you've offered, right? It's not generosity to say, I'll give it to you tomorrow. It's actually stingy. Don't be and Ebenezer Scrooge. Is that not what that story is? A parable. And if Scrooge learns anything by the end of those nightmares that he has, those visions, it's what? His greed is an isolating sentiment. It brings misery and loneliness, and ultimately you die alone, and no one remembers you. In fact, they come to your funeral and they mock you. That is the legacy of those who are not good to their neighbor. And not only that, but look at verses 29 and 30. Basically, don't pick a fight. Don't be a violent man. The Bible does not forbid force against ungodliness. But we are not to strive, verse 30, against a man without cause. Don't pick a fight. It's simple enough. In fact, verse 31 puts a fine point on it. Do not envy those who are violent. Why would you be envy of a violent man? What is violence always in service of? The agenda of the oppressor. The agenda of the violent man. And in Proverbs chapter 1, the father has already told the son why men do that. It is to gain for themselves power, wealth, and privilege not freely given by God through obedience. Don't be that kind of person. And there's a reason for it. That way ends in death. It's very practical. It's not just because God doesn't like it. Right? That principle is hard to conceptualize. But when you say to the son, if you are a violent man, well, your life will end in violence. 
In the same way you treated others, do not be surprised when it comes upon you. The Father again says to the Son, Your mission is to use wisdom to help. And wisdom says what? Give lavishly. Give lavishly. Because ultimately, in verses 32 through 35, God is watching, and he is the one, as I said even this morning, who has reward for those who are righteous and those who are wicked. And so in verses 32 through 35, quickly, we see these things. We see the quality that the Lord curses and the quality that he rewards. Look at verse 32. For the perverse or the devious... They are an abomination to the Lord. But the Lord's secret counsel is with the upright. Do you want to know what God thinks? Do you wish to know his will? Do you want to know what is righteous and good? God will not tell you if you are devious and perverse. Do you wish to know the mind of God? Then be upright. Seek it out. Do good to others. Be Christ-like to your neighbors. Verse 33. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked. Wickedness here is cursed. But he blesses the home of the just. What is just? It is to treat men righteously according to the word of God. Those who are wicked receive the curse. Those who are just are blessed. Do we live in just days? The wicked thrive, the wealthy prosper. This is the way of wickedness. Satan would have it no other way. We must stand up for the cause of the poor and the afflicted. But we must be just. And when we are just, we will be blessed. This deviousness, this wickedness, these are acts of violence. The next act of violence, of oppression is found in verse 34. Surely he scorns the scornful, but he gives grace to the humble. Those who scorn, those who shame, those who ridicule and mock are those who will be scorned by the Lord. Do you see the nature of God's punishment here? He gives to you according to the ethic by which you give to others. This is one of the ways in which God brings justice. This is what happened with Israel in the time of the judges. The Israelites began to worship the gods of Philistia. And what did God give them? A conquering nation that ruled over them with tyranny and pain. And then they cried out to God and he delivered them to the judges. And then they worshipped some other foreign god of some other foreign nation. And time and again, God gave them over to their wickedness to show them what? It is not all that it's cracked up to be. And then lastly here, as it relates to God's own watchful eye in the way in which he relates to those who live on earth who practice wisdom or folly, verse 35, the wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. Now this is not only the reputation of fools before God, but men. 
What will history prove of your life? What will it show? Will your life be a legacy of folly? Or will you inherit the glory that comes from God? Wisdom brings glory. Folly brings shame. Now these things are not true only some of the time. Ultimately, they are true all the time. God assures us this because he is king and judge, because he made the world and we live by his rules. They are true for all men because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you may say, well, no, not me. I'm different. And God says, "Mm, I don't think so. So what is the clear call? Sons, get wisdom. For what reason? Because there is no greater stuff, there's no greater commodity of earth by which you can be blessed, by which you might bless your neighbor, by which you are then blessed by God. It's what we call a win-win-win situation. God blesses you, you bless your neighbor, you are blessed by God. And guess what often happens? That to those who show mercy, that to those who bless their neighbor, that those neighbors will often bless you in return. Let me just give you a very simple example. My house, we grow eggs. You grow eggs? We grow eggs. My neighbor grows bees. And there have been a number of occasions where he's brought me honey, and I say, you know what? Here's some eggs. Take that and multiply it. Not just, I mean, it's a real world example. One of the, my favorite things on earth is honey. And all it costs me is a dozen eggs. That's actually a pretty uneven trade when you think about it. This is the kind of life we are to lead and not looking to the reward that we can even find in this life. But so that we might not only identify, but seek the pleasure of knowing that God is the one who sees all. And is lavish, not only at times in this life, but in the life that is to come, to reward those who walk according to his ways. May we then seek wisdom and love our neighbors. Let's pray. Lord, even so.